And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. We live in a day when doctrine has become an unpleasant word, even among evangelical Christians. Admit it, when you hear the word doctrine, does it evoke positive or negative feelings in you? Now, hey, Deborah. (laughs) Hey, Miss Geraldine. God bless you. Uh, A person who holds strongly to doctrine is viewed as difficult, divisive. Often such people are arrogant, thinking that they're right and everybody else is wrong. They're not usually regarded as kind and loving. The popular cry of our day is they will know that they are Christians by our love, not by our doctrinal agreement. So we're encouraged to set aside all doctrines that divide us and come together on the basis of our common love for Jesus. After all, tolerance and unity are the most important thing. I mean, look where doctrinal debates have led us into centuries of shameful division among those who believe in Jesus Christ. Life, experience, and feelings are what matter. Theology is stuffy and dry and dead. Now, the problem with such thinking is that it brings us into direct conflict with Jesus. Our passage shows Jesus in conflict with some of the religious leaders in Israel, the Sadducees, who denied the doctrine of the resurrection and the existence of angels and spirits. Now, when they proposed their doctrinal question to Jesus, he didn't respond, well, the important thing, guys, is that we all love God and we love each other. We're all Jews and we all believe the scriptures. You hold that there is no resurrection, while some of us hold that there is a resurrection, but none of us can know for certain. So let's just get together on the matters where we agree and sing songs that make us all feel good. After all, love, not doctrine, is the most important thing. Is that what Jesus said? Is that what he did? (laughs) No. He forcefully refuted their doctrinal error. Uh, Mark records that Jesus told them, he, he, he gives us the harshest words of Jesus in this account. He records that Jesus told them at the outset that they were mistaken. And then in his closing comments, he adds, you are greatly mistaken. So apparently, sound doctrine mattered a great deal to Jesus. It mattered because he knew that a person cannot hold to serious doctrinal error and be rightly related to God. It mattered because he knew that it's impossible to truly love a person who holds to serious doctrinal error if we don't warn him of his error and teach him the truth as revealed in God's word. Now, since sound doctrine mattered greatly to Jesus, guess what? It should matter to us as well. You should care about doctrine because Jesus did and because your life here and hereafter depends on holding in faith to sound doctrine. Let's just quickly go to the Lord. Father, once again, we are just uh, privileged to uh, sit under your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you would speak truth to our hearts, that we would see that, yes, doctrine does. What we believe affects how we live. So God, speak that truth into our hearts and we'll give you praise and glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our knowledge of the Sadducees, it's a bit scanty, it's a bit uncertain. Uh, We don't know for sure the origin of the group or their name. Uh, They were mostly upper class, educated, rationalistic, 
religious conservatives, yes, they were conservatives, who held to the supreme authority of the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. We call them the book of Moses or the Torah. They didn't regard the rest of the Old Testament as true scripture. They rejected the oral traditions of the Jewish rabbis. Uh, the high priest and many of his associates were Sadducees. Now, in their denial of the resurrection and the existence of angels and spirits, man, they disagreed sharply with the Pharisees because they did believe in those things. Now, Jesus' encounter, it reveals just three reasons why we should care about doctrine. Number one, you should care about doctrine because Jesus did. Now, to be honest with you, <clears throat> we should be able to say amen and close the book and say, yeah, that's good. Because that's, that's a big deal. If Jesus cared, we should care. I want you to note two things. A, Jesus taught that there is such a thing, <clears throat> excuse me, as doctrinal truth and doctrinal, doctrinal error, and it matters. <laughs> he didn't say, hey, it really doesn't matter what you guys believe just as long as you're sincere. Have you ever heard that? And he didn't say, I love you guys, you're my brothers, even if we disagree over this little matter of the resurrection. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I respect your views. After all, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. He certainly didn't say that. He told them authoritatively that they were greatly mistaken, and he set forth the reasons why. Well, in the late 80s, Alan Bloom uh, pointed out, he wrote, in a, he wrote a book, and he pointed out something about the intellectual community and how they were beginning to view religious thought and religious knowledge. Here, here's, here's what he says. The intellectual community has relegated religion to the realm of opinion as opposed to knowledge. It is simply a matter of one subjective and uncertain opinion versus another one. In other words, just my opinion versus your opinion. Undergirding this is the view that all truth is relative. We talked about that a few weeks ago, remember? Truth is not relative. There is an absolute truth. And that tolerance is the chief uh, virtue. He closed up by saying the point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it's not to think that you are right at all. Because it's just your opinion. Now, the results of this is you can have two people holding to opposite views, and, and I mean totally diametrically opposed opposite views in the spiritual realm, and they both can be right. Since religious truth is simply one's subjective ideas or experience of it. Now, I'm watching this show. It's called um, The Manifest, and a miracle kind of takes place. And so one of the survivors of an airplane crash starts a new church, and it's called the, the Church of the Miracle. And so in his sermon, this was this week, I heard it, and I was like, and now I'm going, I should have wrote down his exact words, but basically he says, um, we, are, we all believe. He said, whether you believe in resurrection or whether you believe in reincarnation, and he lists a couple other things. And these are things that are really not compatible. Either one is true or, and the other, or the other one is. They both can't be true. Uh, my point being, and then he says, because you believe, we are all saved. And they're believing whatever they want to believe. So for them, truth is totally subjective. It's whatever you believe truth to be. 
In John 18, Jesus was talking to Pilate. And he says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. Now, if you don't know it, how does a Jew emphasize something in his writing? He repeats it. Jesus did that. You remember you ever heard him say, verily, verily? Sometimes it's just verily. Sometimes it's verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, listen. Well, here he repeats himself. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world. What is it? Does anybody know? To bear witness to the truth. Wow. If Jesus' purpose for coming to this earth was to bear witness of the truth, that means that truth must exist objectively, truly. There is a standard of truth, and anything that doesn't conform to that is some sort of falsehood. Paul stated that the job of an elder is not only to exhort in sound doctrine, but also to refute those who contradict well, I'm not saying that we're going to be cutting or, or nasty or unkind and blasting those who don't agree with us. Paul said that the Lord's bondservant, that's us, must be not quarrelsome, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Now, also, we need to be careful to distinguish core, central doctrine, doctrines of the faith from those that are more peripheral, right? Uh, clearly, holding to the deity of Jesus is far more important than one's view of eschatology or how the world is going to end. Some doctrines are so important that to deny them is to deny the Christian faith. Now, these would include the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, uh, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary atonement, his bodily resurrection from the dead, and his bodily return. He's coming again one day. How about this? Uh, that we are all justified by grace through faith apart from works. And of course, the future judgment that is to come. Other doctrines are important because they have a strong effect on how we live our Christian lives, but they're not on the level of heresy. Here's an example. Some live their lives leaning towards antinomianism. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a fancy word. It breaks down into two Greek words, anti and nomo. Nomo is the Greek word for law, nomos. So anti-law, against the law. I, uh, they don't mind sinning so much because they're under grace. They're no longer under law. To them, grace allows them to sin without judgment or worry. Well, in my theology, grace is the power of God to overcome sin and to live rightly. Big difference in the life that will be lived based on that belief. Well, some doctrines, they're not even worth wrangling over. Uh, we've all met Christians who want to debate uh, what we would consider minor issues that have no real practical significance. They want to prove that they're right and everyone else is wrong. Now, it's okay. It's fine to discuss such issues in a spirit of love, but to part company okay, over these issues? No, that's actually a sin. Jesus viewed the doctrine of the resurrection as a core issue. Okay? To deny that God raises the dead is to deny the doctrine of future rewards and the, uh, for the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. 
is to deny the, the faithfulness of the covenant-keeping God whose promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob clearly were not fulfilled in their lifetimes. So we make God out to be a liar. It's to deny hope for those who have lost loved ones or for those who suffer terribly in this life if there is no resurrection. As I mentioned last week, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, if we deny the resurrection of the dead, then Jesus is not raised and our faith is utterly worthless. We are still in our sins. So Jesus taught that there is such a thing as doctrinal truth and error. Well, B, Jesus shows us that the source of sound doctrine is not human reason, but Scripture properly interpreted. Both the Sadducees and Jesus, they, 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 they held to the authority of Scripture. They believed in the Word of God. Uh, the Sadducees began by quoting from Moses, and Jesus answers them by quoting Moses. But these men gave too much emphasis to human reason, our ability to think. And it led them to dis disregard certain scriptures and they underestimated the power of God to raise the dead and to give them a whole different existence in heaven. Now Mark 12, 24 quotes Jesus. Is not this the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? So two things were lacking in their thinking. In Luke 20, Jesus deals with their not understanding God's power in verses 34 through 36, and they're not understanding the Scriptures in verses 37 and 38. The Sadducees' error was based on some wrong assumptions. They wrongly assumed that life after death would necessarily be just like life now. So they took the Mosaic allowance for a brother marrying his deceased wife's, uh, a deceased brother's wife uh, in order to raise up offspring for him, and they wrongly applied it to life in the resurrected state. They wrongly assumed that people will marry monogamously in heaven, just as they do now. And based on their assumptions, the idea of a woman having seven husbands, husbands in heaven, that's logically absurd. But their assumptions, again, were wrong. These men underestimated God's power to raise us from the dead and to give us a new body that will not be subject to sin and death. Now, Jesus says that in the res resurrection, we're going to be like angels in two ways. One, we will not marry. Sorry, bud. And, and we're not going to die. Now, there's a third that we know as well. We will not be able to sin. So we will come into the full sense of being sons of God, sons of the resurrection. That's what verse 36 says. We're already children of God through the new birth, but we cannot grasp the full import of that until we receive our new resurrection bodies in heaven. Now, the Sadducees erred because they were rationalists. If something went beyond their human reason, such as God's power to raise the dead and give them a whole new existence, they wouldn't accept it. In other words, if they couldn't understand it, they wouldn't believe it. Rationalism limits knowledge to man and the power of reason. Believing in God and his supernatural power is not irrational, but it is supra-rational, meaning it actually transcends human reason. The way we know the truth of scripture, scripture is first by being born from above by God's power so that we come to know him 
And then by submitting our reason, our intellect, and our will to God's revelation in Scripture. So we must hold to all of God's word and what it reveals, even if it doesn't fit with our finite reasoning, or we're going to fall into serious doctrinal error. I mentioned in the first service, there's an old saying among even ancient theologians that the finite will never fully understand the infinite. God gave us minds, and he gave us good minds, but they're not his mind. So let me ask you this. If you could actually figure out God, do you think he'd be a God worth following? Now, there's a reason we call him God. Right? He, he's smarter than us. <laughs> he knows things we don't. And just because we can't understand it, that doesn't mean that we discard it. Right? God does. Well, rationalism undermines God's power. But faith in God's word actually affirms it. So in verses 37 and 38, Jesus shows how the Sadducees didn't understand the scriptures. He takes that incident of Moses uh, at the burning bush. Do you remember that? That's when God reveals himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now these men that he just mentioned had all been dead for centuries when God said that to Moses. It'd be kind of ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of those men who ceased to exist when they died. If the patriarchs had died and ceased to exist, then God's promises to them would be null and void. But as Jesus explains, God is not the God of the dead, but God of the living. Now, those who have died in faith are actually living with God. Um, awaiting the day when they're going to receive their resurrection bodies. Verse 30 says, 38 says they all live to him, which means that believers, after they have died in this world, lead a heavenly life with God. Now, again, the point is not to set aside human reason. God gave us good minds for a reason, but rather to subject our reason to God's revelation in Scripture. We must know the Bible as Jesus did. This means thinking carefully about scriptures. How many of you would have inferred the resurrection from God speaking to Moses at this burning bush and saying, take off your shoes. I am the God of, Ab of your father Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. God was proclaiming the resurrection in those little words. He's not the God of the dead. He is God of the living so we cannot exalt our reason above Scripture or try to force Scripture into our logic. It won't work. So you should care strongly about doctrine simply because Jesus did. Number two, you should care about doctrine because your life here depends on holding in faith to sound doctrine. I can only touch on a few aspects of this. A, you cannot be in submission to Jesus and knowingly hold to false doctrine on core issues. The Sadducees were in opposition to Jesus. They were not in submission to him. They're challenging his authority, trying to humiliate him in front of all the people. And Jesus clearly asserts his authority and his lordship in his confrontation here, as well as in the next scene. This is where he goes on the offense and he actually challenges them with a question. And it stumps them, and they don't, they don't ask him anymore. The Sadducees were supposedly the educated ones. But here we see Jesus, the untaught carpenter from Nazareth, 
boldly refuting their error in a way that makes even some of the scribes, probably Pharisees, they remark, teacher, you have spoken well. Now, invariably, the person who knowingly holds to doctrinal error on core issues is kind of hiding behind a smokescreen of some supposed difficulty in the Bible so that he doesn't have to submit to the Lordship of Christ. That is what Christianity is about, is submitting to Christ. Now, I say knowingly because there's a difference between that person and, and the babe in Christ who's just come to know the Lord, who may be in error or, or may be confused by some difficult doctrine simply because they're untaught. They just don't know. With this one, we've got to be gentle, we've got to be patient, and we've got to teach them. But he could also be confused because of a false teacher who actively promotes error, even though he knows that it's deviating from orthodox doctrine. Now, so here we've got to be much stronger because this false teacher knows better. But invariably, the false teacher is not in submission to Christ as Lord. So it follows that B, holding to false doctrine, stems from sin and it results in sin. Jesus goes on in verses 46 and 47, which hopefully we'll look at next week, to confront the sin of the scribes, which included both Pharisees and Sadducees. They were proud. They loved receiving adulation and honor. They posed as religious men, but they were really greedy, selfish hypocrites who would face God's severe judgment one day. Now, was their false doctrine of the resurrection a cause of their sin or a result of it? Probably both. Uh, false doctrine and sin always get entangled together. Doctrine always affects life. Just a few days after this encounter with Jesus, these Sadducees sided with the Pharisees, who they did not like at all, in condemning Jesus to death. Their refusal to submit to Jesus' teaching on the resurrection in part led to their sin of killing their very own Messiah. Sound doctrine produces healthy Christians. False doctrine is both a cause of and a covering for all manner of ungodliness. We'll see our motives are important. Our, our motives for wanting to know sound doctrine they matter. These men didn't come to Jesus with a sincere doctrinal question which they wanted to get cleared up. They just wanted to make Jesus look bad to the crowd. And so they contrived this unlikely story about a woman and her seven husbands. Now even the Pharisees who commended Jesus for answering well, they were not submitting themselves to Jesus and his lordship. No, they were just commending him because he happened to agree with them, to agree with them on this particular point. Their motives were not pure. The only valid motive for wanting to know sound doctrine is so that we can know and glorify God better. That's it. It's to help us know God, help us to know how to glorify him. Sound doctrine should lead us into a deeper love for Jesus Christ who gave himself for us on the cross. We should never want to know doctrine so that we can proudly prove that we were right or display our great knowledge. In fact, the more we truly know sound doctrine, the more humble we will become because we'll begin to realize just how big and great God is and just how really small 
we ourselves are. We should care about doctrine because Jesus did and because um, sound doctrine affects our life here on this earth. And there's one more quickly. You should care about doctrine because your life hereafter depends on holding in faith the sound doctrine. Talking about the afterlife. Now Jesus here is not speaking about the resurrection of the wicked, but only of the righteous. He says that some are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. Now, he, he, he implies here what elsewhere is taught explicitly, that some do not attain to it. The wicked will be raised from the dead, but for judgment and eternal punishment. In our text, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all men who knew God personally because of his grace. God counted them righteous on the basis of their faith, not their works. Scripture never teaches that these men or any others were worthy in themselves of heaven. They were worthy only in the sense that God imputed his righteousness to them by faith. The point is, our very hope of eternal life hinges on holding to sound doctrine about salvation and about the promise of God regarding life to come. If we mistakenly think, as many professing Christians do, that we attain eternal life by our good works, guess what? We can never have hope because we will never know if we've done enough. Right? Many people just picture it as a scales. As long as I've got more good than I do bad, God's going to take me. The problem is, we never know where that is. But that's not at all what Scripture says. I shared with the, the 830 crowd, I know in my own life, I've struggled in the past looking at my life. Satan has used my own life as a mirror for me to look at and go, how can you call yourself a Christian? And as long as I look at myself, that's all I feel is condemnation. But you know, my whole perspective changed change is when I start thinking about Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What that means is if I want assurance of my salvation, I look to Jesus. I don't look to myself. My goodness, that's depressing. Yeah, I never see any, I never see any, you know, body that's uh, in Scripture who is, you know, spiritual or whatever that says, hey, look how great I'm doing. What did Paul in 1 Timothy consider himself? The chiefest of sinners. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. If he said that about themselves, how should I feel about myself? He relies on Christ. We have to rely on Christ. You see, if we believe in him, the one who justifies the ungodly, which is what Paul tells us God does, our faith is reckoned as righteousness. And that's the only basis for solid hope about that life to come. It's because of Jesus. Now, quickly, here are three concluding applications. Number one, don't buy into the current trend to sacrifice core biblical truth on the altar of love and unity. No, some things are worth dividing over. We must be kind. We must be gracious in our manner, and, and we shouldn't quarrel over minor issues. But we do not truly love others if we compromise the core truths of the gospel for the sake of unity. No, it's gospel first. 
Biblical love cares enough to warn about false and damnable doctrine. Number two, work at deepening your theological understanding. The word theology scares the average person. It turns, um, what's your name? Tyler. <laughs> it turns Tyler and I on, right? We talk about theology, we light up, you know, our, our feet get light and we're like, woo, let's go. Most people, we understand. I, I've, I've been in ministry long enough to know there's very few out there like that. Okay, that's quite all right. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, which we consider to be the high watermark of New Testament theology, it doesn't get any grander and any more difficult than Romans. Was he writing it to seminary students? No, he was writing it to a church who was struggling in Rome. Now, if they can really struggle with Paul's writings, so can we. Don't be afraid of theology. Number three, if you don't understand the basic truths of the gospel, don't pretend that you do. Talk to someone who can help you today. Your eternal destiny is at stake. If you believe false doctrine about how to get to heaven, being sincere will not help you on judgment day. Many people in false, cult, false cults, they are sincere, but they're dead wrong. Everyone who's ever boarded a plane that has ever crashed believed in the soundness of that plane when they got on it, didn't they? But they perished because it was faulty. If you believe in a faulty way to heaven, guess what? You're going to perish as well. You will not make it. The Philippian jailer asked Paul, um, he said, what must I do to be saved? Simple question, simple answer. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So you should care about doctrine because Jesus did and because your life here and hereafter depends on holding in faith to sound doctrine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for an opportunity just to look into your word. It has challenged us this morning to understand that, yes, there is objective truth out there, and it comes from you. Father, the best representation we had of that was your son, Jesus. And now you have left us your word, which is truth. So, God, I pray that you would pierce our hard hearts, speak truth into our hearts, draw us close to you. If there's anybody here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, Father, Take out their heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh. God, may they turn to your son Jesus today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're a little bit over, so I'm just going to do a quick, quick invitation here. Maybe you're out there and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never submitted your lives to him. I encourage you to do it this morning. Paul says today is the day of salvation. Uh, if God is speaking to you, don't run from it. Run to it. Uh, for those of us who are believers and are trying to follow the Lord, trying to walk a life that is pleasing to Him, understand that what you believe matters because what you believe affects how you live. We have the Word of God that He has given us that says, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is how to live right. Okay? It's kind of our, our, our passport for life there. It gets us through so many things. I hope you were following God's word and not setting aside just certain sections and having to say, well, you know, I follow the rest of the Bible, but this part here, yeah, I ain't too keen on it, so we're just gonna throw that out. That's not how it works. 
That's not submitting to Christ. And many believers continue to do that, even after coming to the Lord. They come across something that is, it, it's in conflict with their life or their lifestyle or whatever. And they just kind of hide it and say, God, you can have everything else except that. Guess what? God wants that too. Well, so turn it over to him today. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.